Well, hey everyone, welcome back to our Sunday School series in Zechariah. We're going to be in chapter 10, verses 9 through 12 today. And last time uh, we were dealing with Zechariah, I had made mention that we were going to spend some more time on these verses because there's a lot to unpack here. And what we're going to do today is something a little different than we normally do when I'm teaching through books of the Bible. Normally, as I'm sure you've figured out by now, I like to stick very closely to the text. I like to build my outline on the biblical text itself and work verse by verse, word by word through the passage to try to understand everything that we can. Today we're going to do something a little different. Today is a little bit more of a bird's eye, big picture sort of perspective on these few verses here in Zechariah 10 because there is a lot here and a lot of implications here for understanding the rest of not only the Old Testament, but the whole Bible as a whole, including the New Testament. Because what Zechariah is doing in these verses, 9, 10, 11, and 12, is something that really the whole Bible does. And what is that, you ask? Well, we're going to find out today. So let's look at Zechariah 10, verses 9 through 12. I trust today is going to be a very special day because we're looking at the whole of the Bible today, not just at these particular words in these verses. So it's going to be a big global Uh, good picture that we're going to have today. So let's look at these verses. Let me read them for us here, and then I will open us in prayer. So verse 9 of chapter 10 of Zechariah. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt, and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon, till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Let's pray quick. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the prophet Zechariah and and what you inspired him to write. Lord, we pray that you'd help us understand this passage, not only in isolation, but also in terms of the whole canon of scripture, Lord. Um, Give us eyes to see and a a mind to grasp the big things this morning. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Last time we were dealing with this passage, I'd mentioned towards the end that especially in verses 11 and 12, we have some very strong exodus imagery. You may remember that if you listened to our our last recording. Very strong exodus imagery. And what I'm talking about is, of course, when the children of Israel were led out of Egypt by Moses. You remember that they were led out, they passed through the Red Sea, God parted the waves and they were able to to walk through there and God brought them um, eventually into the promised land. And so we've got that language showing up here in verse 11. He, that is Israel, shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. Right there you've got the the imagery of the Red Sea parting and God is is, um, leading his people out of bondage and out of slavery and the pride of Assyria is laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. And you remember last time how we said that the scepter or the staff was symbolic of divine power for the Egyptians. 
And so what God is saying when he says that the scepter of Egypt will be laid low is that Egypt's gods will be revealed for what they really are, namely powerless, fictitious imaginations in the minds of the Egyptians. So this is strong Exodus imagery, and this in here in Zechariah is not the only time we have this happening. The whole scripture is filled with Exodus imagery as uh, a great metaphor for God's delivering of his people. And what I want to sort of show you today from a big picture, whole Bible perspective is that not only do we have the prophets using sort of these isolated images of the Exodus to describe God's salvation for his people, but really we have the entire Bible constructed on this imagery. And indeed, especially we have the life of Christ constructed on this Exodus imagery, all right? And so this is, this is amazing in God's providence. He orchestrated history to fall out in these ways, in these patterns, and it's pretty amazing to see this when we, when we take a look at it. So we've got two points in our lesson today. Two points, not three, as I usually have, but two points. The first point is we're going to look at the structure of the Old Testament, big picture. How is the Old Testament put together? And we're going to see that it's put together to center around the Exodus, okay? And then secondly, we're going to look at Jesus as the second Moses and the second Israel. And once we do that, you're going to see that this language that Zechariah is using for the salvation of Israel in his own day is the same kind of thing that we see throughout all of Scripture. And I want you to understand these big themes because when you understand the big theme, you can better understand these these little occurrences of it, because you've got the bigger picture in your mind to, uh, to put everything together. So without further ado, let's look at point one, which is seeing uh, that the New Testament repeats the same structure as the Old Testament. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, this would be a way more ideal to do if I had a whiteboard that you all could see, uh, because then I could sort of map this out and draw it. And I'm sure I'll do this in a future Sunday school class or, or something eventually because uh, it's just so important that I want to ingrain it in your minds. But um, since I can't show you this, I'm going to have to explain it. So you might want to grab a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil to sort of diagram this yourself. It's not complicated, but it does help if you can sort of visualize it in some way. So um, let's take a look at this. Here is the structure of the Old Testament. All right? The Old Testament is essentially divided into a couple of different sections. Okay, The first section of the Old Testament is what theologians sometimes call the prologue. The prologue. And you know that a prologue is sort of the, the introduction to a, a work of some kind. And of course, as you probably could guess, the prologue of the Old Testament is the book of Genesis. right? Because the book of Genesis is setting the stage. It's the introduction to all the revelation that's going to come after it. It's explaining the creation of the world, the creation of man, the fall into sin, the promise of Christ, all of these sorts of things that are setting the stage for the rest of God's story. So that's the prologue. That's the book of Genesis. Now, the second section of the Old Testament is called the covenant section. And no, this is not unique to Reformed theology or unique to uh, Presbyterianism or anything like that. Everyone can see, right, that in the Pentateuch, we have a particular uh, focus on the concept of covenant. And so the covenant section of, of uh, the Old Testament is Exodus through Deuteronomy. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
and Deuteronomy. That's the covenant section. And it's very, very clear because, of course, the word covenant is showing up constantly. We have the Ten Commandments given as the words of the covenant. That is the essence of it, the, the, uh, the law, the stipulations that you are to obey in the covenant. Right? And then, then we also have, which is, I think, very interesting, we have right away in this covenant section in Exodus, we have the birth of the covenant mediator. And of course, we know the mediator of the Old Covenant is Moses. The mediator of the Old Covenant is Moses. We learned that in the New Testament. We're told that in the book of Hebrews as well as a couple of other places. Moses is seen as the representative head of all the covenant that came before Jesus. So he's sort of the central figure of the Old Testament. He is the mediator. And like I mentioned a moment ago, in this covenant section, we have the giving of the law. And then we also have the presentation of the gospel. Now, when we think about the Pentateuch, or the first uh, few books of Scripture, um, we don't really tend to think of those as being super gospel-centered. At least, that's, what, uh, that's sort of the common misconception. But we really should think about these first books of the Bible as being very gospel-centered. Because not only in Genesis do we have the clear presentation in the Abrahamic covenant of the coming Christ, uh, the, that that Savior, that, that uh, anointed one that's going to come. But we also have, in this covenant section, Exodus through Deuteronomy, we have the law, that is the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, everything else. All of that is given within the context of grace. Because what happened just prior to the giving of the law? Well, we have Salvation just happened, right? Salvation from Egypt. Salvation from bondage and slavery. God, in his grace, brought the Israelites, who did not deserve it, out of the land of Egypt. And then gives them the Ten Commandments. So, all of the Mosaic Law and the Ten Commandments, as a summary of the moral law, all of those things are given in the context of grace. And furthermore, not only are they given in the context of grace, but God provides further grace when he institutes the sacrificial system. Because God didn't say to the Israelites, all right, guys, I brought you out of Egypt. You didn't deserve it. Now, here's all these laws. Keep these laws and you'll be saved. No, that's not what he said. He said, keep these laws. Oh, by the way, you're not going to be able to keep these laws. And you're also sinful by nature. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish a sacrificial system for you. Here you go. And this sacrificial system will be the means by which I don't destroy you. Right? Because God in his wrath has every right to destroy sinful human beings. But in his grace, he provided sacrifices to pay the penalty that the Israelites should have paid. At least... Uh, symbolically. Now, of course, we know the Israelites weren't saved by the sacrifices. They were saved through the sacrifices by Christ's perfect sacrifice that he offered on the cross. Right? So the sacrifices weren't directly saving them. They were being saved by Christ. But nonetheless, the sacrifices were being used as a means from which to symbolically transfer their sins so that they could see the, um, the uh, punishment that their sins uh, were worth. And so just overall, what I want you to see is that we have the prologue, which is Genesis, and then we have the covenant. 
And that is Exodus through Deuteronomy. And we have the, the birth of the covenant mediator, we have the presentation of the law, and then we have the presentation of the gospel. And there's a whole lot of other things. There are more aspects to covenant that we could talk about, but I'm just trying to keep this simple. That's the covenant section, and there we have the essence. We have the stipulations and the promises and the blessings, namely the law and the gospel being presented there, okay? So that's the covenant section. So we've gone up from, from Genesis through Deuteronomy, and we've got two sections, the prologue and the covenant. Now we have the third section of the Old Testament, and that third section begins with Joshua, and it runs all the way through the historical books and the major prophets, like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, those big, long prophets, okay? And that section that runs from Joshua through the historical books, through the major prophets, is called the covenant history. That's what theologians call this, covenant history. And the reason for that is because it is recording the history of how the covenant unfolded in redemptive history. What happened with God's people after the covenant was instituted? And within that section of covenant history, right, you've got the historical books, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, so on. You've got these books recording history, telling us how the covenant played out in history. And then you have the major prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and these prophets are sort of engaging in what we might call homiletics. Now, homiletics is just a fancy term for preaching. And what the major prophets are doing is they are preaching, they are interpreting the history that has happened, and they are giving exhortation to the, uh, to the people, to God's people. So you have within this covenant history section, you've got history and the interpretation of history and the preaching of exhortation. You see that? So that's what we've essentially got in this covenant history section. And then finally, our final section to the Old Testament is called, or what theologians often call, the covenant life section. And the covenant life section begins with the book of Psalms and continues all the way through the rest of the poetical books like Lamentations and Ecclesiastes and Job and so on. And it continues all the way through the minor prophets. And the covenant life section is the section of the Old Testament that is restricted to giving, to giving um, instruction to God's people. So in the covenant life section, there's a lot less history you may notice that in the latter portion of your Bibles, there's a lot less history. It's a lot more of comfort for the believer, right? The book of Psalms, think about that. The emotional comfort of the believer, giving us psalms to sing and worship and so on. Um, we've also got uh, books like um, uh, the Minor Prophets that are explaining to Israel why they went into exile, like the book of Zechariah, for example. The book of Zechariah is in the covenant life section, explaining to the people what happened in the past like interpreting it, but saying, why did this happen theologically? And what can we do now? What are we supposed to do right now? How are we supposed to live this covenant life in this day? So that's the covenant life section, explaining how the people of God are supposed to live in light of their current situation. All right, so those are the four sections of the Old Testament, the four major pieces, the prologue, Genesis, the covenant, Exodus through Deuteronomy, Covenant history, Joshua and the historical books through the major prophets, and then covenant life, book of Psalms and the rest of the po poetry, 
all the way through to the minor prophets. That's your major flow of the Old Testament. Now, some of you, maybe you've heard that before. Others of you, you may be thinking, boy, I've never heard that before, but that actually makes some sense. Right? You kind of understand the flow of the Old Testament. You sort of understand, oh, that's how it's all put together. It's not just random orders. The books are not just put together randomly or chronologically. They're put together thematically. They're put together specifically to be this structure. Okay? All right, so that's the structure of the Old Testament. Now, here's where we get to our major point here, and that is that it's not just the Old Testament that has this particular structure, believe it or not. This particular structure is copied in the New Testament. And you may say, hey, what? wait, what? This, this whole structure is copied in the New Testament? Yes, it is. All right, let me show you. We turn our, our attention to the book of Matthew. How does Matthew begin his gospel? Here's how he begins it. Verse 1 of chapter 1 of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Matthew there opens up his gospel with an explicitly um, uh, word-for-word phrase that's constantly found throughout Genesis. Genesis is full of this phrase, the book of the genealogy of Adam, the book of the genealogy of Noah, the book of the genealogy of X, Y, and Z, right? This is very, very common in Genesis. This is, this is going back to Genesis. Matthew is saying, hey, look, I'm repeating the prologue. I'm importing this structure. I'm beginning my gospel with a genealogy just like Genesis. So Matthew's beginning with Genesis, same thing with the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark begins with the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Matthew or Mark there uses the word in the Greek arche when he says in the beginning, in the arche. All right, and that of course points back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the Book of Genesis, which begins en arche, in the beginning. So Mark himself is also calling back language that is similar to, to the book of Genesis. And of course, we know the Gospel of John does this very thing as well. John says, in the beginning was the word. Just like Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God. And this connection becomes even more clear when we see that the Gospel authors then, after doing a sort of a quick reference to, to Genesis as the prologue, of their structure, now they move right into the covenant section. Right into the covenant section. All the Gospels do this. Uh, John, a little bit to a less extent, but the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do this very explicitly. They move right into the covenant section, and they begin with the birth of the covenant mediator, or at least an explanation of the origin of the covenant mediator. John does this too, of course. They do it slightly differently. Matthew and Luke have birth narratives. They explain the birth of Jesus. We'll look more carefully at that in our second point uh, in our lesson today. But they begin with the birth of the covenant mediator, who, of course, is Jesus. And then secondly, they move on to talk about the law. What is it that the first thing that Jesus does? What is it that Jesus spends, really, the, the bulk of his earthly ministry doing? He gives moral exhortation. He preaches the law. Oh, interesting. What did Moses do when he inaugurated the covenant as the mediator? Oh, what did he do? He issued the law. 
on the mountain. What did Jesus do? Well, look at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus gets on a mountain and he gives a sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is on a mountain preaching the law. We'll look at that more carefully in just a second. But we have the presentation of the law here in the Gospels. And then we have the Gospel presented as we have Jesus' crucifixion narrated in all four Gospels. And, of course, the resurrection and the declaration of what Jesus accomplished as the perfect sacrifice. So what I want you to see is that in the Gospels, in the New Testament, we've got the prologue and the covenant. The covenant being clearly set forth, the birth of the mediator, the law being presented, and then the gospel. And we'll look at that in a little more detail in just a second. But then secondly, in the New Testament, we have covenant history, just like in the Old Testament. If you wrote this outline down on a piece of paper and you're following along, notice that we're following that here too. The gospels have a prologue, like Genesis. They have the covenant with the same structure as Exodus through Deuteronomy. And then we get to covenant history, And the covenant history in the New Testament is the book of Acts. The covenant history in the New Testament is the book of Acts. And what do we see in covenant history? Well, remember, in the Old Testament, covenant history is the historical books explaining the history of what happened after the covenant was instituted. And then we have the major prophets giving sort of sermons, giving preaching, explaining the covenant and applying it and warning the people what needs to be done. Well, we've got that very thing in the book of Acts, don't we? The book of Acts is a book of history and sermons. A book of history and the interpretation of history. Think about Stephen's great sermon in Acts. um, I want to say it's chapter 7, but I could be wrong about that. Um, We have Stephen's great sermon in Acts, very long sermon where he explains the history of God's people from the Old Testament all the way up until the New. We've got history and preaching in the book of Acts. And so there we have covenant history in the New Testament. And finally, in the New Testament, we have covenant life. And you remember, covenant life is simply the teaching of God's people of how to live in their given situation. And of course, that is the rest of the New Testament after Acts. Romans, all the rest of the epistles, they're all teaching God's people how to live in the current time. And of course, by extension, teaching us how to live in our time. Right? So we've got the same thing in the New Testament, and and I want that to be very clear to you. We've got the prologue, the covenant, the covenant history, and the covenant life. And then to put the cap on the biblical canon, we have the book of Revelation that is essentially the epilogue to the whole canon of Scripture, explaining the end of the beginning, really, (laughs) but explaining the end of this world and the coming the second coming of Jesus Christ, and the final judgment that the Old Testament was hinting at. So we've got, in the Old Testament, these sections, and in the New Testament we have these sections. You can see, they're following the same pattern. And you can see that in the Old Testament, the pattern is all based on the covenant section, which is the Exodus. And everything from that is always looking back and comparing and contrasting and pointing back to that thing that happened in the Exodus. In the New Testament, we have that same structure, but it's not pointing back to the Exodus, it's pointing back to the second Exodus, which is Jesus, and what Jesus accomplished. And so that's what I want to to then now focus on for the remaining few minutes that we have together, is I want to focus on the second point, second and final point today, and that is Jesus as the second Moses and the second Israel.
Because this is what the New Testament is constantly pointing back to in the Gospels. So Jesus, let's take a look at him very quickly. First of all, we have Jesus' birth. Jesus' birth. Now compare Jesus' birth with the birth of Moses. You may be thinking, well, I'm not sure how I would do that. Well, let me do it for you here. Think about Jesus' birth in connection with Moses. First of all, both Jesus and Moses had a king who wanted to kill all the male children in the land. Isn't that a unique coincidence? Or, I guess not really coincidence, isn't that a unique providence, I should say? Both Moses and Jesus had kings who wanted to kill all the male children in the land, right? For Moses, Pharaoh wanted to kill all the male children, and Moses was spared by God's grace and by the cunning of his parents, particularly his mother. Jesus was saved, or excuse me, um, when Jesus was born, Herod wanted to kill all of the, the males in the land, but Joseph and Mary fled, and they brought Jesus with them to Egypt. And so that's really the second comparison between Moses and Jesus, and that is that they both flee. For Moses, he flees into the wilderness. For Jesus, he flees to Egypt. So they both are, their lives are threatened and they both flee. And then finally, we have a third comparison, and that is that both Jesus and Moses were tested in the wilderness. Moses out in the wilderness of, of um, the Arabian desert, and Jesus was tested out in the wilderness right after his baptism. And that leads us then here to, to the second point under Jesus as the second Moses in Israel, and that is Jesus' baptism. See, what's kind of interesting is that Israel, according to the Apostle Paul, Israel went through a kind of baptism when they went through the Red Sea. Paul, the Apostle Paul makes that very clear. He says it explicitly. Israel was baptized by going through the Red Sea. They were transferring from the land of bondage and slavery into the promised land, into the land that God wanted to give them. And so they went through a kind of baptism or a washing or a cleansing when they went through the Red Sea, a, a theological baptism, if you will. Well, Jesus also underwent a baptism where he transferred from one side of a river to another, and that was the Jordan River. And so just as Israel went through the Red Sea to transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, so Jesus went through the, the Red Sea, or excuse me, Jesus went through the Jordan River in order to symbolize that he himself was also making that same transfer that Israel needed to make. It, Jesus is introducing himself as the new Israel at that point. And to further confirm this, you remember that Israel underwent 40 years in the wilderness after they went through the Red Sea. Right? They had to stay in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, Jesus also did something for 40 days, and that is he went into the wilderness to be tested and tempted by Satan. So Israel underwent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus went 40 days in the wilderness. You know, the, 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 the compounding and the putting together of all of these connections, really, it cannot be coincidence here. The gospel authors are trying to communicate that Jesus is the new Moses and the new Israel, that Jesus is doing all of these things. Why? So that he can be the full and final representative for Israel and for Moses, the true uh, chosen one, the true mediator that won't fail, that won't sin, 
the true mediator that will act on behalf of his people and save them. And so Jesus is doing all of the things to show that he himself is going to take their place and he is going to act on their behalf. And so then finally we get to the third section here, and that is the law. Now remember I hinted earlier that we needed to talk about this, and so now we turn there. Jesus as the second Moses, now after he's baptized, now after he's gone through the Red Sea, if you will, and after he's been tested for 40 days in the wilderness and has passed the temptation, unlike Israel, now Jesus is going to step onto a mountain in Matthew chapter 5 and in... um, Uh, I don't remember where it is in Mark or Luke, but it's somewhere. Um, Jesus is going to step onto the mountain, and he's now going to give the Sermon on the Mount. And just like how Moses proclaimed the law from Mount Sinai, Jesus is now going to proclaim the law from another mountain near the Sea of Galilee. And he's going to give the Sermon on the Mount. And what's the Sermon on the Mount? Is there any gospel in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, not really. The Sermon on the Mount is pretty much entirely moral exhortation. It's entirely law. And what's amazing about that is that we learn from this fact that Jesus is acting like Moses. Jesus is the second Moses, giving the law. In fact, Jesus' Jesus Sermon on the Mount has specific emphasis on the Ten Commandments. This is where Jesus says all of those very famous statements where he says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And so Jesus is constantly bringing up the Ten Commandments and not changing them, but is rather explaining what they've always meant. The commandments have always had strong internal components, as we talked about back in our Ten Commandments series that we did last summer. So Jesus, if you will, is very pro-law. Let me say that again. Jesus is very pro-law. See, some, some sort of come to the Sermon on the Mount and they look at it and they say, well, all Jesus is trying to do here on the Sermon on the Mount is he's trying to get us to, re- to see our sin in ourselves. That's all the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's just to show us our sin. And as far as that statement goes, that's absolutely true, isn't it? That Jesus... In the Sermon on the Mount, when he gives all this moral exhortation and showing all of the internal components to the law and showing how impossible it is to keep, when Jesus does all of this, he is showing us that we need to be broken before God. He is showing us our sin. He is showing us our total depravity. That is a very important use of the law in Scripture, to break us and to show us our sin. But that is not the only purpose of the law, right? The law has another purpose, and that purpose for the believer is to be a rule of life. For the believer, the law is a rule of life. It shows us how we are supposed to live as regenerated, believing Christ followers. So we don't get to just sort of dismiss the law and say, well, it doesn't really matter. It's just supposed to show me my sin. I don't really have to follow it, so the law is a bad thing. No, the law is a wonderful thing for the believer it's a terrible thing for the unbeliever, right? It condemns, it condemns, it condemns. But for the believer, there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Now the law is something that should be our delight, 
as David makes very clear in the book of Psalms. We are supposed to love the law. And if we don't, we need to pray that we would. And we need to constantly be pursuing a life of holiness. I feel that that, in many ways, is lost in our Christianity today. We're, we've sort of sidelined holiness as something that's not really necessary for the average believer. No, it is necessary for every believer. The Sermon on the Mount is not just, not just to show us our sin, although it certainly does that, and we never want to minimize that, but it also shows us a way of life. Just like the Ten Commandments that Moses preached on Sinai showed the Israelites a way of life and show us the way we are to live as Christians as well because the Ten Commandments were part of the moral law. That's why Jesus repeats all of them in the New Testament. So we have Jesus as the pro-law lawgiver in the Sermon on the Mount, just like Moses, showing the people of God their sin and showing them how they are to live. So that's Jesus preaching the law. And then finally here we have Jesus as the second Moses in Israel and sort of repeating this whole Exodus theme in that in the Gospels, in this covenant section of the New Testament, the grace of God is clearly displayed. Now in the Old Testament, as we said before, the grace of God is clearly displayed in the covenant section of Exodus through Deuteronomy by means of the sacrificial system, by means of God's steady patience and long-suffering toward his disobedient people, and by the types and promises of Christ that, were, that are to come. Right? So that's what, how we see God's grace in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see God's grace and the gospel being presented in Jesus' death and resurrection, which is, of course, the climax of all four gospel accounts, is Jesus' death and resurrection. So putting all of this together, as we bring this to a close, I want you to see Jesus is presented in the Gospels as the second Moses and the second Israel, the one who didn't fail, but rather the one who does everything perfectly as the perfect mediator between God and man. So if we sort of bring all of this to a close and wrap it all up, I want you to see that the Old Testament and the New Testament are structured in the same way. They're structured around a mediator, a lawgiver, and the gospel. The centrality of the Exodus imagery is everywhere in both the Old and the New Testament. And so when God, in his inspiration of the Old Testament scriptures, inspired prophets like Zechariah and many others to express the coming salvation of God in terms of the Exodus, like we see in Zechariah 10, verses 11 and 12, that is on purpose. It's on purpose because God was preparing his people through these prophecies to see all of that Exodus re-unfold again in the coming of Jesus as he was the true Exodus to which the first Exodus was always pointing. Next time you're reading along in Jeremiah, or Isaiah, or Zechariah, or Ezekiel, or whatever other prophet or passage of scripture that you are reading, when you see Exodus imagery, don't skip over it. Don't miss the significance. This is what the scripture is pointing to. It is pointing to that Jesus Christ who is the one who is our great mediator, 
our great lawgiver, and our great gospel. And so let's thank our Lord for uh, this great truth here as we finish up. Oh God, we thank you for um, your word, and Lord, we thank you that your word is not put together randomly. Um, When we look at the books of scripture and we look at the general order, we're Lord, we thank you that it's not random. It's not, it's not just there for no reason. No, everything is carefully structured, God. We thank you for that. And we thank you that your word is so intricate and detailed and tied together with so many amazing themes. And we thank you for this Exodus theme today that we've been looking at. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see it throughout all of Scripture. And Lord, most of all, we pray that you, we, would, we would love the truth of, of the theme, that we would love the fact that Jesus, your son, came to this earth and he took on the form of a human being like us and he died for us and he rose again because he is our true mediator, our true lawgiver, our true law fulfiller and our salvation, our savior. Lord, we thank you for this great truth and pray that you would help us to appreciate it and to love it and to trust in it. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.